Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Able Voices Podcast. I'm Dr. Rhoda Bernard, Founding Managing Director of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, and I am proud to present this podcast featuring disabled artists and arts educators. We are inviting artists with disabilities to be guest hosts for the Able Voices Podcast. Today's guest host is Anna Cowley Ford. Anna Cowley Ford is a post-disciplinary artist from rural West Texas. Using her experiences living with chronic health conditions as a touchstone, Ford explores the often bizarre world of living with chronic pain and disabilities. Along with manifesting sensory experiences, her artwork conveys the social and domestic impacts of health conditions on a chronic scale and the patient's experience navigating the U.S. healthcare system. Ford's practice includes, but is not limited to, functional and sculptural ceramics, textiles, large-scale installations, video, and accumulated medical objects and documents. Artwork like self-portrait ceramic busts and fabric figures instigate conversations around the body, non-visible sensory experiences, and disability. After earning a BA in art from Grinnell College in 2011, Anna Cowley Ford established a studio practice and has shown in juried and solo exhibitions nationally and internationally, including in Dallas, New Orleans, Des Moines, and Leeds, UK. She will complete a Master of Fine Art in Studio Art in May 2022 from Maine College of Art and Design. Afterwards, she will continue her visual art studio practice. This includes making a range of work that can be exhibited in galleries and exhibitions and sold throughout her website and stores. When not in the studio or raising heck, Cowley Ford can be found in the garden. Hi, my name is Anna Cowley Ford. I am an artist based in West Texas that's interested in visually recreating sensory experiences and livelihood impacts associated with chronic illness. I'm the current guest host of Able Voices podcast, and today we are visiting with Finnegan Shannon. Finnegan Shannon is an artist. Some of their recent work includes Anti-Stairs Club Lounge, an ongoing project that gathers people together who share an aversion to stairs. Alt Text as Poetry, a collaboration that explores the expressive potential of image description. And Do You Want Us Here or Not? a series of benches and cushions designed for exhibition spaces. They have done projects with Banff Center, Argo Center for Audiovisual Arts, The High Line, the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver, MMK Frankfurt, Lux, and Nook Gallery. Their work has been supported by a Wynn Newhouse Award, a residency at iBeam, and a grant for Art Matters Foundation. Welcome. Oh my goodness. Um, so first, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us your story as an artist. Uh, how did you start as an artist and how did you get to where you are today? Well, I'm so excited to be here and get to chat with you. Making things has always been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, um, but I wasn't introduced to conceptual art really until high school and college. And that was where, yeah, I started to really think about what art can communicate and art as a way of connecting with other people. I was a studio art major in undergrad at Carleton College. And 
did a lot of printmaking and drawing there. So that's kind of, I think that actually seeps into a lot of my work to this day. And I moved to New York after undergrad. Uh, I was really interested in being an artist, but I think I didn't have a lot of knowledge about what that might look or feel like in a kind of day-to-day -day way. Um, but I was really lucky my first job from undergrad was working at a residency program. And so I met a lot of artists who were three to 10 years older than me. And that was like so helpful just in terms of understanding like, okay, some people have this day job and that works for them in these ways, or this person teaches, or this person does art handling or, or things like that. And it's only been in the last few years that art has been my, my job, my full-time job. And that still feels really surreal to me. And it's hard to think about what that might be in the future. But um, for now, I'm really appreciative that I get to work with people that I really respect and admire and, and think about things that I'm interested in. And um, yeah. That's amazing. Um, which residency? Sorry, I don't know if that's too personal, but um, residencies are awesome. And it's such a, they're great for community and just bringing people together from all different walks of life. That sounds like such an incredible experience. Yeah, I worked, I worked there for, for, three and a half years. And I actually didn't work at, they also have an exhibitions program and, and I worked actually on the programming side, but because um, it was, I worked at the Wasaic project, which is about two hours outside of New York city. And um, everybody's kind of like living in this small town. So there's a lot of chance to interact with different artists, both through the residency and also through the, through the exhibition programming. Amazing. I love that you went to Carleton. I didn't realize that. I went to Grinnell College, which the running joke is <laughs> it's everyone who was waitlisted at Carleton went to Grinnell. <laughs> that was, those were the colleges I was deciding between, Grinnell and Carleton. They're the only yeah. two colleges I visited. Really? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't anticipating being interested in Carleton, but like stopped by after, um, oh my God, the one that's in St. Paul. I'm blanking on the name, but. McAllister. Yeah, McAllister. <laughs> and that's when I realized, like, I don't want to be in a city. I want to be in a small town. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> that's really amazing that you are full-time artisting right now. Um, can you talk about what that transition was like? Yeah, the the big change for me was in 2019. I was, I had applied for and received a fellowship at iBeam, which is an organization in New York that supports artists who are thinking about technology in some way. And that uh, fellowship, they've shifted and changed the way they set it up. But when I was doing it, it came with this big chunk of money. I think it was either 25000 or $30,000. And so because in that year, I knew I had this kind of significant chunk of money coming from my art practice. Um, that was the year that I was like, okay, I think I can scale back my day mm -hmm. job and yeah. And hope that like through a combination of kind of making other things work. Um, and then I had actually been like in 2020, I'm going to kind of reevaluate and maybe go back to my day job. And then obviously that was such a weird and wild year and yeah, kind of continue, it continues to feel a little bit uncertain to me in terms of exactly how this is all working. <laughs> 100%. Yes, I 
Can you share about your experiences as a person with disability and as an artist with a disability? Yeah, I've been disabled since I was born. So that's kind of always been been part of part of my life. I was I actually used to say that I was really isolated from disabled people when I was a kid, but the more I reflected on it, the more I feel like actually disabled and sick people were really present in my life. I just wasn't I think given like the political education tools to understand our the connections between our experiences. So when I was growing up, I was really pushed towards mainstream and, and kind of normative environments and activities. And yeah, I think I definitely like internalized this idea that like making disability as small a part of me as possible was like the way to be okay and to get what I needed in the world. And it wasn't until in undergrad, there was another disabled student and I had this experience just kind of in casual conversation with her where I just realized that all of these things that I thought were like my own unique personal experiences were actually shared and politically and socially shaped. And that really got me really excited about thinking more about disability broadly. And um, there wasn't a lot of disability studies material offered, but I, I was able to kind of like piece some things together and my own reading and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and I I will say like, I feel really lucky to, I feel like I was part of a cohort of disabled artists in New York who were really intentionally organized. And that has had such a huge impact on me, um, both through the work of um, Alice Shepard and Kinetic Light, who has like hosted a lot of opportunities for um, disabled artists here to get to know each other. And then also through, a group that no longer exists, but was called DANT, um, Disability Arts NYC Task Force, that also um, gathered a lot of disabled people together. And um, before those things, I didn't know a lot of other disabled artists in New York, but but that those gatherings kind of allowed me to meet other people. And um, yeah, and now I think of my, well, you know, so much of my work, I think would not, has been so influenced by other artists work in those relationships. And I really don't think my work is, would be possible without that. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. The community that goes into making the work um, is really important. Yeah. I think I've just learned about myself. Like I'm not the type of artist who can just kind of make things in isolation. I really need to be talking with people and seeing other work and experiencing other projects. And I think there's also really amazing like cross-disciplinary things that happen. Like there's a really amazing disability dance world here. And so Mm -hmm. seeing, you know, for example, description in dance performance and, and being like, oh, well, and how would that relate to description of static images or things like that? It's just, yeah really fruitful. Uh, Can you share about your arts education, which you already touched on a little bit, how you studied the arts, how you continue to learn today? Yeah, so my formal, my formal arts education started in undergrad, well, in high school and undergrad. The studio art program at Carleton is a mix, but it's very craft oriented. So I felt like I really had this, um, education and printmaking as, as a kind of um, craft and as a 
as a collective, you know, there's a certain vibe in the printmaking studio where, you know, people are working on different things and you're talking and, um, and there was also a professor that was hired while I was there named Ross Elfline, who taught post 1945 art and architecture. And that was also really amazing for me to have more access to, um, yeah, art from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like my art education has continued in a huge way after after that. I didn't go to grad school, so um, I feel like I have kind of pieced together ways of, of learning outside of a, a formal institution, whether that's just like, yeah, exchanging studio visits with other artists, um, like reading lots of things. I, I think I'm like, well, I don't know. Sometimes I get kind of stuck on reading and I'm not reading very much at all. But, um, you know, I think when just noticing what, when I feel curious about something and um, moving towards those things and trusting that things will feed into the work as they need to or, um, and, and yeah, and then definitely around specific projects, kind of like doing, like really thinking about like, okay, what kind of research do I need? Both conceptually and also just sometimes logistically, like when I first started making furniture pieces, I had no idea how to make a piece of furniture. Right. So I had to like, I was like kind of chatting with different people about it. And someone was like, oh, I have a friend who sometimes makes furniture who that person like generously offered to meet with me and just like talk about ways that benches can be made out of plywood. That was like, yeah, yeah I it was really helpful. Um, the information that can be shared with people it's just really beautiful. And I think like for me too, I'm always like, I have an idea. I have no idea about any of the processes or how to do it. And it's like, okay, let's learn, you know, like being an artist is also being a scientist and a researcher. <laughs> and we have so much information at our disposal that like anything that we're wanting to learn about, we can either be learning the skills online or be finding the people to be helping us piece it together. Um, and yeah, formal education is like such a small facet of like our education as an artist. Um, and so much of it, I feel like happens outside of the studio too. Um, it all informs each other. Yeah. Well, and I think especially for disabled and chronically ill artists and other marginalized and multiply marginalized artists, there isn't always access to what you need within a formal educational experience because so many of those things have been pushed out of those spaces. And um, I think, yeah, there are ways that we sometimes need to kind of build our own curriculum to, to support what we, what we need and what we're excited about. Yep, that's really beautifully said. I'd like to hear about how your experience is navigating the art world and academia and like art world, you know, what is your art world that looks different for everyone? Yeah, I, when I graduated from undergrad, I was really interested in, in, yeah, this idea of being an artist. And I think I didn't expect any sort of recognition outside of like my own interest in it and like the interest in the work from people kind of directly around me and, and who I care about and who I felt excited about connecting with the work and 
So it's been a big change for me to to engage with kind of a a broader or bigger or like more centralized maybe art world and yeah I do feel lucky that I think I've the way that I approached it was through this channel that was more about learning and education you know a lot of the support that I was getting from my work early on was it wasn't through like a commercial gallery it was through like speaking opportunities or workshops or grants or things like that more project-based support and residencies and and so that I think was really helpful because I was able to really attend to the work that I wanted to make and I now work with a gallery but that's come later and I think it means that the gallery wanted uh, kind of new like I felt like I didn't have to change the work in order to meet the needs of the gallery yeah they already knew what you were about Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean I find I don't think the art world is an easy or the art. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there are pockets of the art world of art worlds that are really supportive, but I think a lot of the art worlds are, yeah, are really, yeah, have just really tough power dynamics. And I think every artist I know is, is trying their best to navigate those things and stay connected to their values and, and what's important to them while also trying to get, support that they need to live and have health care and have a place to live and yeah it's hard <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> yep, it is yeah it's not a steady income um and every industry is struggling for like quality of life the workers so it's i don't know i get like brain fog of like all the things i want to say and then just like getting frustrated um and also I'm like so far away from like the art world of New York City mm. so mm. it's easier to detach from it and pretend like it doesn't exist but it still is such a huge machine that is creating all of these rules for how all of these people are getting treated and um yeah academia what you know I think you shared a little bit that there wasn't a lot of like disability services or materials while you were at Carleton yeah, I mean, I, I think also that was a point in my life where I didn't even really know what to ask for or what to seek out. I had, right. I think the only formal access request that I remember making was around housing. I was really worried about the walking distances, especially in the snow in the winter. But now I look back on it and there's like, I'm like, yeah, there's so much more that I needed that I just didn't. Yeah, I mean, I was just so used to ignoring my needs or kind of powering through things and and yeah and I I, and I do really wish that there was more support in terms of thinking about disability studies and really thinking about the ways that yeah disability is everywhere it's in you know it's in so many fits in so many different kind of um, parts of an academic institution and I, I have also taught a little bit at the new school so that's the only other academic environment that I've I've navigated, but I, I taught adjunct, so I didn't feel very looped into kind of the academic culture as a whole, though I know like there's been a big, there was a huge strike. I wasn't teaching during the strike, but, and a lot of that was around healthcare. And I was, um, I was part of a kind of informal group of disabled professors who were kind of talking about navigating the strike as disabled people. And yeah. How is it? 
being on the teaching end of it, like, did you feel like it influenced how you interacted with students any differently or designed classes or projects? Yeah, I, I felt like, yeah, the class that I taught was about technology and art and disability, basically. I mean, mm -hmm. kind of all of those things mixed together. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important to try as much as possible to let that yeah, to not be like conceptually talking about access and not practicing it in an everyday way in our relationships with each other. And, but it's really hard, I think, as as one professor, you know, so much of the way the institution is set up in terms of timeline, in terms of ways students request accommodations, in terms of even these ideas of kind of quote unquote rigor or quote unquote excellence or grading, you know, like so much of it is seeped in ableism. And I find it really stressful to navigate how much I can change within that as one person teaching one class and how much I can't. And, and I think there's sometimes, yeah, because there aren't the resources that, to really support access, I think there are sometimes are these tensions where students need things that also conflict with like my needs or my access needs or the capacity that I have as a teacher. And so trying to make sure that I'm not only honoring students' needs and trying to, mm -hmm. to meet them where they are, but also like my own needs as a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's like it comes into everything, every aspect of teaching. It comes into attendance policies. It comes into how I structure assignments. It comes into how I think about what participation might look and feel like. Um, it comes into, yeah, just even like the way that I'm trying to interact with students and, and understand what's going on in their lives holistically and not just in terms of like what's happening in, in the class. Right. Yeah, in that moment thinking of it as like the whole picture and not just that few hours that you're seeing them. Yeah. yeah. You are a super active artist. Uh, would you like to tell us anything about some of your current or upcoming projects, um, things you have happening? Sure. A recent project that I feel really excited about, um, a kind of dream project, called Don't Mind If I Do, and it's installed in Cleveland right now at the Museum of Contemporary Art there. And the backstory of that project is my disability makes standing and walking painful, and so I love to sit and I need to sit. And I've made a lot of work about lack of seating in spaces. I think especially in museums, there's this way that I'm like, Lots of access stuff is like a really long-term project and involves like a lot of different shifts, but like more seating, more benches in the gallery seems like something we could like do tomorrow <laughs> if like <laughs> we decide. Uh, but anyway, I, I like, I think that was kind of this like background of the work. And then I had had this kind of fantasy that I would be able to go into a gallery and instead of me having to move from artwork to artwork, I would be able to sit somewhere comfortable and have the artwork come to me. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> um, I, yeah, that, that idea had just kind of been sitting in, you know, percolating. And I was, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier, I was kind of like, well, I don't know anything about like, I guess like conveyor belt technology or like what it, you know, what it would take to, to move objects around a room in that way. And I, 
my engagement with um, the museum with MOCA in Cleveland was through a program they call Getting to Know You Residency, which is a kind of like long-term engagement um, between a non-local artist and MOCA's audiences. And part of that residency is an exhibition. And when we were just in early conversations with the curator, Lauren Leving, I was like, I had this idea. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and Lauren was just like really excited about it. And yeah, and we bought a a 25 foot conveyor belt loop that circles objects through this space. It's it's like the same technology that's used in like conveyor belt sushi. So it's kind of like Mm. that scale. And yeah, there's like really abundant places to sit. We drifted all of the furniture in the greater Cleveland area. So Lauren and I had a couple of very fun days where we were just going to thrift stores and like sitting on different chairs and being like, comfortable, not comfortable. <laughs> and then the, the you can either experience the conveyor belt either as like a parade of objects where you just kind of like experience them moving through the space and or all of the objects are... Um, things that are touchable and holdable. Mm-hmm. So you can also yeah. pick things up off the conveyor belt and spend time with them and then put them back. And it's also a group show. So my work was kind of like creating this structure, exhibition structure. And then um, I got to invite in other artists and collaborators to make work for um, oh, wow. the conveyor belt. So there's, I think, eight artists in the show. Some of whom I'm worked with, I've worked with before and collaborated with before. Um, some of whom are newer collaborators, but all people who I think are really excited about thinking through ways that a kind of experience of art in a museum could be a really different type of engagement. So I think all of them really like took up. It's you know it's a kind of a specific prompt like you need to make an object. It has to be kind of like the size of a dinner plate or smaller. It has to be something that won't break, that it has to be durable. It can't be super valuable. Like, you know, there were kind of a lot of specific constraints. And so it was really exciting to see ways that these artists kind of took some of those things and and ran with them. And yeah, so it's up for, it opened in July and it's up for six months. So it's in Cleveland through January, 2024. And then maybe we'll travel after that. The museum doesn't want the conveyor belt because what would they do with it? So I know the the <laughs> proud owner of the 25 foot conveyor belt. So um, regardless of whether like that specific show travels, I think I'm excited right. to have that as a tool or like piece of infrastructure <laughs> that yeah. I can um, use in other projects and um, yeah, yeah convey keep playing other things with. as well. Yeah. Yep. Oh, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you so much, Finnegan, for sharing um, and making time to be with us today. Um, it's been really wonderful to get to learn about you and hear your experiences and learn about your artwork some more and processes. So I just, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure, and it you know it is it's so nice to connect with other people who are who are thinking about some of these things. And I also, I think part of what we were talking about in terms of like not having as much access to this kind of thing as a student, it's I'm also really excited to like yeah connect with students or different educational environments to see like what's um, yeah how we can what's, bring more what's of this. Then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much. 
Accessible Voices is a production of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, led by me, Dr. Rhoda Bernard, the Founding Managing Director. It is produced by Daniel Martinez del Campo. The intro music is by Kai Levin, and our closing song is by Sebastian Batista. Kai and Sebastian are students in the arts education programs at the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education. If you would like to learn more about our work, find us online at berkeley.edu slash B-I-A-A-E or email us at B-I-A-A-E at berkeley, that's L-E-E dot E-D-U.